You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Gracious God, uh, we come before you today. As we've already sung, with our eyes locked on you, our King. Worshiping you, all glorious above. Hopefully getting a sense of our place as participants, citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, we thank you for your invitations that you give to us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your righteousness and your justice. We thank you for all the ways that you intervene in our own lives and intervene in the world broadly. So Lord, today, as we take this time together to open your word, may these words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Riverside, I hope that we're all feeling encouraged and immersed in the unimaginably good news of Jesus after spending all those weeks in Colossians and Philemon. Uh, For me, it's always sad to come to the end of a series like that, Um, especially one that's relatively short because it feels like you're just kind of getting started and then, well, it's over. But it's beautiful to look ahead. So life with Jesus is anything but stagnant uh, since we walk in step with the one who's created all things who imagined all things, and who even created imagination itself. So we, it's, it's an exciting journey walking with Jesus. Um, so for the next several weeks, we're not going to be walking verse by verse through a certain book of the Bible, but we're going to lean into the themes of the Christian calendar, um, this beautiful annual tradition that uh, reminds us of central theological realities and truths about God, most important elements about God's story, especially the story lived out and embodied by Jesus. So... So where are we on the church calendar, you might ask? Or you might know. Does anybody know where we are in the church calendar? Almost New Year's. That's right. Thanks, Kristen. Um, Today is Christ the King Sunday. You're like, ooh, I've heard of that. Maybe not. Maybe you have. Some call it Reign of Christ Sunday. Um, But it is a space to celebrate that Christ is the ultimate, the reigning one, the king to whom has been given all authority, okay? But when, maybe somebody knows this, when in the church calendar are we? Eh? Louder. The end. I didn't hear it. I don't know if anybody said it. We're right at the very end. The very end. Yeah, this this is the very end of the church calendar. So uh, today is the last Sunday in the church here where we are reasonably close to the last Sunday in our regular calendars, but not quite the same, right? Um, There's no ball drop or no countdown or no shivering in New York City for this. Not that you would expect that anyway, but, um, but worship, what we do when we gather here in this space is telling the story of God over and over and over again. That's what we do. We tell the story of God over and over again. Because no matter how many times we hear the good news of Jesus, we always need to hear it again. 
right? No matter how many times we hear the good news of Jesus, we always need to hear it again. So preaching the gospel, hearing the gospel, integrating the gospel into our lives is a lifelong process. A joy-filled journey of ever-deepening faith, trust, and understanding, and full immersion in God's life. So as we close the loop of one year with a reminder of who is in charge, that's what we do. We end with Christ the King Sunday because we remind ourselves at the very end of all things that Jesus is the one who's in charge. He's the boss. He's the king. It's a beautiful transition into next week, which starts a brand new year in the church life, which is what? You may know that word, Advent, yes. It's, it's, a, it's as late as it can possibly be, Advent, for it to start in December. But, um, but that's what we're doing. So we're ending one, one telling of the story of the gospel, and we'll begin another one next week. That's kind of how the church calendar is designed. It's not like you have to do it this way, but I, I find it helpful, and hopefully you'll find it helpful in your own walk with Jesus. So, um, so today, it might seem odd to look at the passage Vani read for us today <laughs> as we get so close to Advent and as we are talking about Christ the King, but we're going to do it anyway, okay? We're, we're, we're okay with doing things that are odd, right? Odd is okay. Um, so today we're turning to Isaiah 59. It's, a, it's fairly concise. It is long, but it's a concise telling of the ways God's people are in need of a good and just king. It describes a bit about Yahweh's qualifications for the job of king and describes for us a bit of what it ought to look like to participate in such a kingdom. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start uh, not, where, not where the reading today started, but we're going to start at the very beginning of Isaiah 59, which is verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ears too dull to hear. I have long arms. You may have noticed that. but It's my understanding that the Lord's arms are even longer than that. Yes, seven-foot wingspan. Victor Yemba has an eight-foot wingspan. The Lord, what, eight trillion miles. I don't know, whatever. We We don't have a number for the Lord's wingspan, right? But this is the mission statement of the chapter. The question of whether the Lord's arm is too short has been raised a couple times in Scripture. Is the Lord's arm too short to rescue us? Like, is, is, that, is that a thing? Numbers 11, Isaiah 50, both times, the Lord brings it up. Do you think my arm is too short to rescue? Do you think I can't quite reach you? Is that the problem here, friends? The Lord uses the question rhetorically to get his people to consider whether they really trust him or not, right? So in Isaiah 59, Isaiah answers the question emphatically, surely the arm's Lord, the Lord's arm, the arm's Lord, wow, the Lord's arm is not too short to save. Surely the Lord's arm is not too short to save. There might not be a more common action movie trope than people desperately trying to hang onto somebody's hand while they dangle over a cliff or a pit or a crag or an abyss or a volcano or something else, right? You get the picture. There's drama built into that scenario, right? This, this, this word picture. Is the person at the top's arm long enough? Is the person at the top's arm strong enough to bring the helpless person to safety? There is drama built into that. And if you have a generous view of God, 
you probably have no issue believing that his arm is plenty long, right? Clearly going to be long enough. You might even picture God with go-go gadget arms that can reach unthinkable distances and would indeed reach unthinkable distances just to rescue a lost sheep, right? Because that's that's what we read in the Bible. And you wouldn't be wrong to envision such a picture, right? Anchored in a confidence in God's loving care. It's a gross understatement to say that God's character is to go to great lengths to rescue, right? The second line, though, goes along with the first. Right? Surely the Lord's arm is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. No, the Lord's ear is not dull. God is not hard of hearing. And the only reason I can think that Isaiah would have to bring this up is that the Lord has been accused of being hard of hearing, right? You may have experienced this in your life. Perhaps like a home plate umpire, accused of not being able to see quite correctly. The complaints come early and often. And I have a vague but probably pretty amplified memory of a lady in a crowd at one of my youth baseball games chastising the umpire in like the weirdest and longest-winded possible way. I don't know if you've ever encountered this woman at a, at a youth baseball game, but hey, ump, why don't you take Perryville Boulevard south to the LensCrafters, and if you can, find the door, make yourself an appointment with the ophthalmologist, and get a prescription on your spectacles changed so you can see what's plainly happening right in front of you. I'm pretty sure she said all that. I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain. Now, I don't know if that's the creative track talk that the Lord is dealing with or if it's just, God, do you even hear me? Right? That's probably more likely what it is. Do you even hear me? But complaints are complaints, right? So after this one verse of intro, as I said, this is kind of the mission statement of the passage. We got many, many, many verses about whose senses are actually dull and whose arms might actually be too short. And I'm not going to unpack every single line of the psalm, but we are going to walk through the whole thing and pause a couple times as we go through. So, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. Israel, or Isaiah, Isaiah does not equivocate here. He does not pull any punches. Your iniquities, your sins, your blood-stained hands, your lips, your tongues have separated you from your God. That is not easy to hear for anyone, right? Like nobody wants to hear that. That's not like the thing you came here to hear today. Um, But I would imagine that based on all of our experiences of being human, that description does check out. Right? The things that we do, the things that we say, the things that are on our lips, the things that sometimes we even do by accident, they're the things that separate us from God. It's usually not him who's initiating a separation, right? right, Let's keep going. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll keep pushing through. Verse 4. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments, they utter lies, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. No one calls for justice. So this is huge in the biblical story and the biblical imagination. It's one thing for there to be injustice in the land, right? 
wickedness, sin, idolatry, all of the biblical language we use to describe the way we miss God's mark of righteousness. But it's a much graver problem. It's a much worse problem if no one's even calling for justice, right? If no one's even holding them to a standard, holding us to a standard for justice. If the standard isn't being upheld, if there's no expectation of goodness, only resignation to the hostile takeover of evil, that's a problem. Verse 5, this is what it looks like, yikes. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs, oh my goodness, their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Now, I know we talked about the calendar. It is not Halloween right now. Um, but we're a few weeks past that, but can we just acknowledge how horrifying this description is? A little, I, perhaps there's some phobia triggers for some of you if you're not into spiders and snakes. But So we're just going to acknowledge that that was there and just keep going. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They've turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Justice and righteousness. So in Hebrew, the word justice is mishpat. Somebody say it with me, mishpat. All right. And righteousness is tzedakah. Somebody say it with me, tzedakah. All right, that's fun. Um, congratulations. You know Hebrew now? Uh, but both of these terms are, they're relational, they're collective terms, they're both practical and tangible in the world, and they are meant to be put, to practice, put into practice in real life, both of these things, justice and righteousness. And in Isaiah's words, justice is far from them, and righteousness does not reach them. So there's them, and then there's justice and righteousness, and they're far away. Maybe as the east is from the west. He doesn't use that language, but that's how it is. The people are not acknowledging the standard of God. So, of course, they're not taking any actions to meet such a standard, right? So, Mishpat and Tzedakah, justice and righteousness, are paired together over 50 times in the Old Testament as two sides of the same coin. Righteousness, which is God's standard for right relationships, and justice is the steps we take to get there. I'll say that again. Righteousness is God's standard for right relationships. And justice is the steps we take to get there, to, to get to right relationships. And together, in Isaiah's time, justice and righteousness are standing together, both sides of the same coin, far away. Like they've just been tossed as far away from the community as they could find. Because they've tragically chosen injustice and unrighteousness, right? That's what we're seeing in God's people. Now we get to the part that Vani read, verse 10. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. Should we do it? 
We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. Okay. So now there's a turn that's happened. They're, they're looking for justice, right? They've gone from no one looks for justice, no one's even seeking it, no one, no one even is looking out for it, to now they're groping along the wall, finding a way, looking for it, looking for justice, but, the last verse, finding none for deliverance, but it is far away. And now Isaiah interjects some confession. Like the people are starting to get it. People are start, it's starting to dawn on them what they have done. So here is a prayer of confession. Verse 12. For our offenses are many in your sight. You hear the change of tone? Our offenses are many in your sight, speaking to God. And our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord. Turning our backs on God. Inciting revolt and oppression. Uttering lies our hearts have conceived. That's pressure. That's, that's confession. And now, moving to verse 14, we talk about what the consequences have been of their sins. What, what, what they're confessing has led to. Verse 14. So, Justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. We've already heard that. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. This is grim, right? Not only justice and righteousness, but truth and honesty are nowhere to be found. They're being actively driven back, They're barred from the premises, banned from the land, and anyone who tries to see them, anyone who tries to pursue them, gets attacked like prey, right? (laughs) Can we get to the good news soon, please, please, please? Okay, let's keep going. Not quite yet. No, we're, we're, we're right there. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. Probably an understatement, right? The Lord looked and he was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So, his own arm. His own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate. He put the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. In Isaiah's vision, the Lord looks at his people, the way that they've ordered their lives, and he sees no justice, no righteousness, no truth, no integrity, only offenses and rebellion and treachery. But in all this, somehow, somehow, the Lord does not give up on his people, right? He looks out and he sees all this, and yet he does not give up on his people. Though justice is driven back, righteousness stands at a distance, he does not give up. His own arm achieves salvation. His own righteousness sustains. His arm and his righteousness. That's why we're reading Isaiah 59 on Christ the King Sunday. Okay? It could could be a ton of passages, but that's why I picked it today. It's a microcosm of the whole story of God at work in the world. 
God has created these beautiful conditions of justice and righteousness and truth and integrity and shalom, right, and peace. God has created these beautiful things. And we have botched things so thoroughly that we, the people of God, and God himself agree together that our only hope is for God to intervene directly. It's our only hope as people, as humans. Is the Lord's arm too short to rescue us? No. Surely not. The Lord's arm is not too short to rescue us. In fact, the Lord's arm is the only arm that can rescue us. His own righteousness is the only sufficient righteousness. The Lord enacted this in Isaiah's time because that is who God is. But how much more is that principle enacted and fully so in Jesus Christ the King, right? So the Lord intervenes. The Lord's arm achieves justice, achieves righteousness way back thousands of years ago in Isaiah's time. But when the Lord wants to achieve ultimate justice and ultimate salvation for all time, what does he do? He sends not just his arm, but his whole self. Jesus Christ, our King. But our King is not a wimpy King. Fair to say? So, let's just talk about how he reveals his long and strong arm in verse 18. According to what they have done, he will, so will he repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will hear, fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. Woo. So in undertaking the mission for himself, the Lord is dressed and armed for the mission and shows himself to forcefully and powerfully defeat all those who are organized and mobilized against justice and righteousness and truth and integrity. This text assures us that the Lord's victory will be complete. I'm starting to see why Israel didn't expect Jesus to come the way he did. Right? They're expecting pent-up floodwaters, expecting wrath to enemies. This is language of a warrior king, right? Language of vanquishing, the language of retribution. A pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along like just... That's, that's terrifying, right? I don't want us to forget on Christ the King Sunday, that this is the power that our Lord has. This sort of commitment to his own justice, his own righteousness, his own truth that the Lord has. His perfect holiness, his desire for holiness, his refusal to let the forces of evil and injustice and lies and unrighteousness win the day. He refuses to let evil win. That is a huge part of the work of Christ the King. Jesus demonstrates his power to vanquish enemies every single time he casts out a demon. Every single time he heals the sick. Every single time he shows compassion to the widow and the orphan. And of course, his greatest act of conquering the powers of evil and death, right? Is fearlessly facing death and overcoming it through resurrection. 
God's enemies do not win, and they will, as verse 20 says, they will revere His glory. Verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in my mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, on the lips of their descendants, from this time on and forever, says the Lord. This is comforting language. The Redeemer, the Lord's covenant, the Lord's spirit, the word of the Lord, now and forever. These are like cues that are healing balms as we hear them. We think about Jesus. The language, this language is readily recognized and we see it all over in the ministry of Jesus, right? It points to the good news to be revealed in the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah who comes to set things right, who comes to bring salvation to lost souls, who comes, as Romans 10.4 says, as the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. All that injustice and righteousness that was so far away from the people, justice and righteousness, standing away, blocked out of the town, The Lord brings it, moves into the neighborhood and brings it to us, brings it to the people so that we might have access. His Holy Spirit comes to open the floodgates of salvation to both Jew and Gentile. It is a beautiful, miraculous, wonderful thing. And this this is why we must not wrestle the reins away from God. Even if we think he's not working fast enough or doing things in our preferred ways. Anybody ever been there? And not answering the prayers fast enough. Seemed to be answering them differently than I had hoped they would come out. But we can't take the reins from him. Something that we noted today and even that Israel knew thousands of years ago, only the arm of the Lord can bring about the will of the Lord. He himself comes to establish, proclaim, and usher in the kingdom of God. A kingdom of justice and righteousness. He had to come and do it himself. And we will falter and continue to need God's constant grace on the journey But in his strength, our pursuits of justice, our pursuits of righteousness, they're core ways that we as Christ's disciples can live together as an expression of the kingdom and as a signpost of the world being made new again in Jesus. That's that's what the church is. That's what we are meant to be. That's who we are meant to be. So at the end of a church year, we are reminded to lean into the victory that Christ has already won. We're invited to lean into the victory that Christ has already won. To submit ourselves to the King. To live the way that He's always intended us to live. In justice, in righteousness, and in truth. 
So by God's mercy, may it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being so much more than enough. With no arms too short or ears too dull, but that you, Lord God, have shown yourself to be our rescuer. You've demonstrated it. You've made it real in flesh and blood through your bloodshed on the cross and through your victory claimed at the resurrection. And we are the people of your power, people of your kingdom. Invited to submit willingly every bit of ourselves to you for your glory and for the work of your kingdom. And that's a scary thing, God. It's scary to submit ourselves. It's scary to give ourselves over to you. So Lord, continue to show yourself to be trustworthy. For any who have doubts in this room today, significant doubts about your goodness or trustworthiness, Lord, show yourself to be faithful. Show yourself to be true. Show yourself. Reveal yourself. Reveal your power and your goodness. Both of which are more than we can comprehend. And Lord, meet us as we come to the table today. Remind us that we are part of this body together. Strengthened by you at the head, by our King Jesus, the one who we celebrate now. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church. 